0: Welcome to Connecting Citizens to Science, a podcast from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine about engaging communities in global health research. I'm Kim Ozano,
1: And I'm B Eggard, And throughout this series, we'll be talking to researchers from around the world, exploring how they connect with people to address a range of challenges in global health. I'm Bea Egid, a PhD student from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, and it's been a pleasure to have this series co-hosted by Dr Wessam Mansour, a postdoctoral research associate at LSTM. Wessam, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? Hi, uh, I'm Wessam Mansour, uh, a pediatrician by background. I
2: had my PhD in health policy and management from the University of Manchester in 2019. Uh, just before I joined Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, uh, where I'm currently working as a postdoctoral research associate in health system, and I'm leading the gender equity and justice working group of the Rebuild for Resilience project in the school. Um, I'm really happy to join today. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much, Rasa. So today, we're really lucky to be joined by Dr. Bruna Schall, postdoctoral researcher at the Fiocruz Minas uh, Institute in Brazil, and Dr. Julia Smith, assistant professor at the Simon Fraser University in Canada. Bruna and Julia will be talking to us today about the gender dynamics of the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks so much for joining us today. And please, could I ask you to tell us a bit about yourselves for the listeners? Bruna, would you like to go first?
3: Hello. uh, Thank you for the invitation to be on this podcast. So, I am a biologist, uh, but I moved from the lab to work with scientific outreach on a radio station and in a museum. And that led me to the social sciences, where I researched the controversy around evolution and creationism. Now, I'm I'm doing my postdoc, uh, and I changed areas again to work with gender and health during the pandemic.
1: Great. Thanks so much, Bruna.
0: And Julia, could we hear from you? Yes, thank you so much for having us. Um, so I'm in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University in Canada. It's a it's an interesting place for me because kind of like Bruna, I've, um, it's almost like the reverse. I started out in the social sciences and now I've ended up more in the health sciences. So my background is in policy analysis and feminist political economy And I've worked with quite a few health and development projects in different parts of the world. And um, now I'm here in the Faculty of Health Sciences. And most of my research focuses on health policy, uh, integrating gender-based analysis into health policy analysis. And of course, over the last two years, much of that has focused on the response to COVID. Thanks
1: so much. That's great. Um, To start off the podcast, please could you give us a brief overview of the Gender and Covid project that you're both working on? Um, Tell us what it's
0: about and the kind of approaches that you're using in the project. So the Gender and Covid project includes research that's going on in 12 different countries right now. It's funded by the Canadian Institute of Health Research and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And what it aims to do is really understand the gender dynamics of the outbreak and their effects. So when we started about, well, over two years ago in February 2020, of course, COVID was just something we were all becoming aware of. But we we knew many of us who were involved in this research had done previous research on pandemics and gender. And so we knew there would be some important things to watch out for and that there was a real need for a gender-based response. So we immediately began conducting research uh, on the kind of the gendered effects. Most of these effects are the secondary effects. So not so much around COVID infection rates and mortality and morbidity, but more around how lockdowns have impacted different genders differently um, about economic and social impacts. And so the research is a little bit different in each country context. Um, depending on who's leading it and what needs are there. In Canada, I've done a lot of research with frontline workers, so people working in the healthcare system, as well as teachers and daycare workers and others. Um, And most of that research is qualitative, so it's interviews and focus groups. I've had conversations with over 200 women over the last two years um, about their experiences in frontline work. I should add that I also include mothers as frontline workers because they are essential to the response in providing primary care. Um, so it's, it's been really interesting. Um, the aim of the research in Canada as well as globally is to really influence policy and inform a gender-based response that hopefully can influence more equitable policies.
1: Thank you. Great, thanks so much, Bruno. Would you like to add anything um, to that about the Brazilian context and the projects that are going on there? Yes. Uh,
3: so here in in Brazil, we are we have several different projects that are all inside of the Gender and COVID nineteen project. So we focused on different groups uh, of women, such as health professionals and women from urban and rural vulnerable communities. And we work in, in rural communities with populations that are called uh, Quilombolas, which are black communities of people who are descendants of slaves. And our project with them focuses especially on the access to water, which was the biggest demand of the women that are the leaders of these communities. Uh, they suffer an historical lack of access to water, which is a result of structural racism against these communities, since other regions around around it doesn't have the same problem. Uh, So these women, they are uh, the central caregivers of the communities, and water is essential for this care, since it is related to food production and the cultivation of plants that they traditionally use as medicine. So, we have been engaging with policymakers to help these women to have their demands to be heard. Uh, And also, I I work uh, in a project that sees how vector control is being carried uh, during the the pandemic, especially the control of the mosquito that transmits dengue, zika and chikungunya. In this work, we uh, we interview, especially community health workers, vector control agents, policymakers, and women from the communities affected. Our approach uh, is mostly semi-structured interview guides, uh, but in the communities that we were able to go in person, we also did focus groups, which were very rich because we could see uh, how women interacted with uh, each other, ideas. And also we did particip- participatory observation of community meetings.
1: That's great. Thank you so much. And it's really interesting to start to get an insight into the sort of different projects that are going on in the different countries of the Gender and COVID project. So I'm going to hand over to Wesam now, who's going to ask you a few more questions um, about the, the approach that you're using. Thanks.
2: Thanks, Bea. Um, it's really interesting to hear about all this uh, work and uh, to find out how different gender norms and board dynamics can influence the basic needs of uh, people, such as access to water, food, health, and so on. Uh, But can you explain more in what ways have women uh, been disproportionately affected by COVID-19 pandemic as well? I'll
0: speak to just the Canadian context. And I mean, one of the most overwhelming impacts has been the increase in unpaid care work. So the child care and elder care. Many of the women I spoke to in my research really struggled with access to child care during the initial lockdown. So in Canada, most child care facilities were closed for about three months and schools were closed as well like in many parts of the world um, and it was just assumed you know that all these children could go home and have someone to take care of them and that meant that mums most often and there's been research that's really demonstrated that mums more often than dads gave up paid work in order to take care for their children and that had knock-on effects in terms of their economic security and their career development so we saw that the vast majority of jobs that were lost during that time were it was women leaving the workforce. Um, about seventy-five percent of the people that left the workforce were women at that time. And then when it came to regaining jobs, even when schools and child, school and childcare reopened, it took longer for women to re-enter the workforce. So we saw a trend where within six months, male employment was at a similar level to what it had been before the pandemic. But for women, it took thirteen months. And that was largely due to unpaid care Was also due to the closure of certain sectors uh, like the food and accommodation sector, where um, the majority of people who are employed were women. We've done some really interesting research with newcomer women in Canada, so women who've come to Canada recently from other countries. And many of those women work in the food and accommodation sector in precarious positions, so really casual part time work. And because their work was precarious before COVID, they were the first to lose jobs and they faced more barriers getting jobs again, especially jobs that would actually pay a, a living wage and enable them to you know, properly care for themselves and their families. So that's been a really big impact here in Canada. Another impact that emerged in our research is around access to justice. So I did a series of interviews with moms who had separated from the co-parent of their children and many of them had a, the, the family courts were closed. And so they were going through court proceedings around divorce, around, you know, payments for childcare, all these sort of things. And because the courts were closed, they didn't have access to, to justice to expedite that process. And that added a lot of stress and uncertainty. And for some women, increased their risk of violence if they had left violent situations. Um, so those are just some of the, the impacts here.
2: Thank, thank you, Julie. Uh, Pruna, have you? Uh,
3: do you want to add anything to that? Um, yes, here we had similar impacts uh, about the burden women had during COVID. Uh, in our survey with health professionals, uh, most men said they spent from zero to fourteen hours per week in domestic work while most women said they spend more than 14 hours. And some responded that they spend more than 30 hours per week. And most health professionals that had COVID were women. And this was expected since they are the majority of health professionals. But it is important to say that they are the majority among the lower level positions that were in the front line and were less protected Uh, Especially the community health workers, uh, who at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, they, they were not considered health professionals and because of that they didn't receive protective equipment, such as masks. And also they didn't have proper training and guidance on how to adapt to the new pandemic context. And they reported feeling fear, lack of support from superiors, superiors, and violence from uh, the population against them because they were seen as carriers of the disease. And most of these professionals are women and black, and they felt much less prepared to deal with the pandemic than doctors and overall wh- white men. So gender and race were uh, were important markers of this of this difference among health professionals and also uh, uh, on vector control uh, health professionals identify women as the main responsible for vector control within households and reported uh, difficulties in communicating about health with men who tend to care less for this the subject and women also express, expressed their limitations to be able to control mosquitoes in their houses, such as lack of time and resources and lack of support from other family members. And also policymakers identified gender inequalities and prejudices in decision-making and how this affected research and policy implementation. Also, we, we had a focus on food security and women, especially solo mothers, uh, were more affected by food insecurity and had their mental health impacted by difficulties to feed their children. Also, on sexual and reproductive health, uh, women interrupted breast and ovarian cancer treatments and investigation by fear of getting COVID in health centers or because they were not able to schedule doctor's appointments because it was all focused on COVID. The number of preventive consultations also dropped for the same reasons, and women faced difficulties to implement or change their IUDs. We also received reports about uh, relationship problems and domestic violence related to the distress of the pandemic, and also uh, maternal deaths, increased a lot, more than doubled in in some cities, and women reported uh, problems to do prenatal exams and poor period follow-ups.
2: Thanks, Bruna. Um, That's really interesting. And uh, speaking about health workers, it was frequently reported that they, particularly female health workers, had been stigmatized uh, during the COVID-19 response, and you have already uh, highlighted that. But uh, were there any attempts to engage local communities and families to support female health workers during that time and to overcome this uh, kind of stigma and discrimination?
3: Uh, From the government, there was very little support. Uh, We saw that uh, this came uh, mostly from the third sector and... uh, women leaders from the communities that organized uh, forms of support by themselves. Uh, But from the government, what we saw was uh, our president talked a lot about using some medications that had no scientific proof, and that led to some violence against, against health professionals that were against the use of these medications. Uh, So we saw a lot of scientific denialism and that was related to this violence against health professionals. And also they were blamed uh, when there were no vaccines. Uh, The blame was placed on them sometimes, so they also uh, received some violence because of that. Uh, But on the other hand, they also had a lot of support and admiration from the population. So this, this two processes uh, happened at the same time. They were being complimented for their essential work and also receiving this violent treatment. Thank you. Uh, Julia, do you want to add to that?
0: Yes. Um, I think there were very similar trends in Canada, though, of course, it's a very different context. Um, I was interested in what Bruno was saying about differential access to protective equipment, we did research with people working in hospitals and long-term care that included everyone from doctors and nurses to the people who do the housekeeping and the food service. And we found that the people, the women, and it's almost all women doing the housekeeping and the food service, um, also did not have access to the same degree of protective equipment. So while the care aides and the nurses had gloves and proper masks, um, the housekeepers were told to like, oh, just wash your hands with soap and water every now and then. Um, And so they definitely felt discriminated against. The majority of people working in those positions are not only women, but many of them are newcomers to Canada. Many of them have come to Canada from the Philippines and other countries and they really did not get the same protection as other healthcare workers. They also frequently experienced violence, um, you know, especially in the long-term care facilities, so the facilities where elderly people are taken care of, they and where we had the biggest outbreaks in Canada. So these are really the centers of the biggest outbreaks and then the highest number of death. These women were like right on the front line and the people that were receiving care um, would often stigmatize them, judge them, and make comments because of their Asian descent, associating it with COVID, so blaming them for COVID because of their race. And so it was a sort of intersection of racism and stigma and um, misogyny all kind of in one. Um, So, for example, one of the women we, uh, we interviewed spoke about how because there were so many violent acts perpetrated onto the care aides that were providing care to the elderly, the managers put up a calendar and said, okay, we want to like document this. So every time that there's a, a violent situation, put a red dot on the calendar. And she said, by the end of the month, the calendar was just full of red dots. Um, and this kind of comes back to your question about if there were, you know, opportunities to support them. And I think, you know, the woman we spoke to, some of them had very strong support groups that they had pre-COVID where they were advocating for their rights as workers um, and for change and for rights around immigration status as well. But with COVID, it became harder to, uh, to organize that way. It became harder to come together. Many women working in healthcare, they told us they were so overworked because um, because uh, of staffing shortages. They just didn't have as much time for that peer support or they didn't, they didn't have opportunities to physically come together. And that was a huge barrier. I think, like Bruna was saying, there was some celebration of frontline workers as essential workers, and that was really positive at the beginning of the pandemic. And you know, there, were, they, there were food donations and gifts given to frontline workers, but it did tail off you know, as we've gone on and, and we're still having outbreaks in long-term care facilities. These women are still on the front lines. They're still facing stigma and discrimination, but there's not that same support and in some cases, there's been violence towards healthcare workers that are providing vaccines because there is this tension in our communities around vaccinations, and some people have very strong views against them. There have been attacks on women healthcare workers yeah, at vaccination clinics, um, and I would say there's been very little like response that I've seen from our government or or others to to protect them.
2: Thanks very much, Julia. That's really great. And I do wish you all the best with your upcoming work. And now I will pass over uh, to B to take us through the last set of questions. So over
1: to you, B. Thank you. Um, and I just had an additional question before we move on to the last section. So you're saying the overall aim of the gender and COVID project is ultimately to influence policy. Um, and you mentioned that governments don't seem to be picking up on that much at the moment. Um, I wondered if there were any ways in which you have seen policy being impacted by the work you've done on the project so far?
0: So here in Canada, we've seen some real action around childcare policy. And much of this comes from a movement before COVID, so a feminist movement before COVID to really improve access to, to childcare and make it more affordable. COVID provided some of a sort of like a policy window for that because childcare became such a, you know, a hot topic and it was really driven home that without childcare women can't work and the economy can't run. Um, and so we've seen some really positive change there that, that our research has contributed to and tried to inform. And, um, the other area that I could say that we've had some direct influence, which isn't something we've kind of covered yet, but here in Canada, we've done some research around Canada's foreign policy and, you know, aiming to inform the development aid and the other projects that Canada as a donor country invests in, in the context of COVID and post-COVID. And that's been really impactful and successful. So we've used our research from the other countries, from Kenya and Brazil and other countries. We've taken that research and we've shared it with decision makers in Canada to say when Canada is providing bilateral aid, they should think about supporting healthcare workers. They need to think about investing in the care economy um, and these sorts of issues. And that's like been taken on right into the policy documents. So so that's a you know, that's a positive, a positive step. That's wonderful
1: to hear. Yeah, that's really great. Bruna, would you like to add to that?
0: Uh, here in,
3: in Brazil, our federal government response to the pandemic was the subject of inquiry. It was under investigation, and our work with health professionals was used to uh, produce a technical note uh, that was made by the Brazilian Network of uh, Women in Science, and this report was used in in this investigation as a proof that uh, health professionals did not receive enough protective equipment, enough training, enough support during the pandemic. So it was a uh, proof of the of the irresponsibility of our government with these professionals. Also, in our work with Kilombolas, uh, we had several meetings with the local government to uh, demand for them to have running water. and this is still uh, in process, but it has advanced a little and but we still have a long <laughs> a long way to go. We are still investing in this engagement with policymakers. And also um, we presented a, a technical brief, about food security in in Belo Horizonte, which is the city where I'm based. And as a result of this presentation, uh, some policymakers visit the the community where we do research in order to check which policies uh, around food security are being implemented there and to listen uh, to the complaints and and see how these policies can uh, reach this population in a better way. On the vector control side, we are uh, doing now interviews with policymakers around gender and vector control, and it is interesting to see how, uh, in the beginning of the project, uh, when we talked about gender related to controlling mosquitoes, uh, people thought it was very strange. Like, how come these two things are related? And now policymakers are familiar with, with our project. They already understand better how gender connects with this. So I think that's also an outcome. Gender being uh, mainstream among policymakers. We are starting to think of gender uh, as something important. So these are some, some outcomes of, of our research.
1: Wonderful. That's really interesting to hear how the research is filtering into policy and and really driving positive changes um, in both of your respective countries. So thank you for that. Um, So to move on to the final section, I wanted to ask from your experience working on this gender and COVID-19 project, what advice would you give to other researchers working in this field?
0: I think I know this is very qualitative researcher type advice, but, um, you know, I'd really say to take time to listen to people about their experiences during the pandemic. I find people really do want to tell their stories and everybody has, you know, had profound experiences that are shaped by the gendered realities they have to live in. Um, And I think as we hopefully, you know, move on from COVID, we need to learn from, from what's been experienced in like sort of everyday lives of, of women and men and gender diverse people. And so I really think that there just needs to be, you know, a real investment in fully understanding the depths of experiences, um, that people have had. And then I think the challenge going forward is how to take that, those experiences and, and inform policy and change and do better. And, and, you know, that's the biggest challenge.
3: Yes, I completely agree with with Julia and and also I think uh there is a challenge to to think about uh, recommendations in a context specific way, uh because we tend to sometimes generalize solutions and it is important to listen to uh women uh, that are leaders from the communities because they have. Uh, very important expertise. Uh, they usually already know uh, what needs to be done. They, they only lack the support for doing it. So I think it is fundamental to, to listen to these women.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really, a really good point. And as you said as well, sort of recognizing that there's so much knowledge in communities and just trying to find the best ways of, of making that actionable. And on that note, to round up, um, do you have any ideas on what you think researchers in this field can do to
0: better engage with communities? I think building on what Bruna has said, it's about really committing to having, you know, honest, con- and meaningful conversations with them and listening to, to their experience and um, allowing them to lead the process. I think there's also an element of... Thinking more critically and more intentionally about how the research can benefit them. We're currently planning a survey with healthcare workers about mental health and COVID. And when I talked to some of the groups that represent healthcare workers, they said, you know, there's, there's real survey fatigue right now. And what they're hearing from their members is that they've filled out all these surveys, they participated in all this research, and nothing's changed. So they've said over and over again that, you know, these are all the negative experiences they had during COVID. They didn't have access to PPE. They had to, you know, work, you know, ridiculous hours. Um, they faced stigma and, and nothing's changed. So why would they fill out another survey? Um, which I think is a very, very good question. And so I think, you know, we've really tried to talk to them about, OK, so how can we do this research in a way that you can see some sort of benefit from it, even though we can't, you know, we can't force the management of long-term care facilities to change their human resource policies. And we can't force the health system to adapt their plans around, you know, protective equipment, but we can try to influence it. Um, But I think, you know, those conversations are very important to have. And as researchers to challenge ourselves to go beyond the, oh, I gather data and then produce recommendations we need to we need to go beyond that and in some capacity
3: yes uh, in brazil we have the same the same situation and uh it was a challenge to do research during the pandemic because uh exactly like julia said people were tired of replying to researchers and seeing nothing changing and in the qualitative work we do, we try to be very flexible, uh, to sometimes to, to change our methods, our questions, the way the research is done, and to be very patient also with the timing. Uh, sometimes we had to postpone doing research because people were grieving for the loss of family members. And to work in, in truly partnership with the people you are doing research with, I think uh, it needs to to have this flexibility because sometimes it goes to another subject that you were not expecting. So, for for example, the, the water issue that we, we saw with the quilombolas, and we had to adapt, we had to study this new field. And... and but I think to do uh, meaningful research, we need to to be flexible like that.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really, really great point for me both. And I think this idea of really centering communities in the research and addressing the needs that they want to address and also providing space for them to be able to bring up whatever issues that they're facing at the time. I think that's that's so important. It feeds into the the open sort of listening mindset that you mentioned, Julia. Um so, yeah, thank you so much for this discussion. It's been really, really interesting to hear about this really wide range of, of impacts that um, women are facing, sort of disproportionately as a result of COVID. Um, I've really been interested in the things you've mentioned about the kind of gender dynamics, but also how they intersect with racial dynamics in both Canada and Brazil in different ways. I think, really, as you say, thinking about how to turn this research into impact for these communities so they feel invested, even if. Um, governments aren't taking swift action. So thank you so much for joining us today. Um, It's been great to have you on. And um, thanks so much.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you.